Um, you might have noticed I have not been in the pulpit quite as much lately. Uh, the reason for that is when you do these series where you take entire books at a time, uh, the preparation is a challenge. It, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight, as well as the presentation is a challenge. And I didn't want the other staff members to miss out on that joy. So I wanted them to experience what that's been like. So uh, Luke did uh, 2 Kings last week. I did 1 Kings the week before. I think Jim did 2 Samuel before that. And just as you've gone through that, it's a really different type of preaching challenge in the study as well as the pulpit. But even though I haven't been in the pulpit, I've been in the room and I've been able to sit in the back. And it actually has given me a little more time to think about you. I sit there and I look out over this room and it fills up twice on Sunday morning and I sit back there and I go, wow, there's a lot of people to care for here. And it's been uh, um, helpful to me as a pastor just to sit there and ponder and think about the different struggles and trials that are represented in this room. Um, they come in a variety of forms. We could go in this room, and some of you are dealing with some extreme health issues, and those can cloud your life. Some are dealing with some really difficult relational issues, and you look and they go, oh, man, I know that their children are really uh, giving them a run for their money, and you, you, know, you sit back there and whisper a prayer for them. Some of them, uh, some of you are going through some financial struggles. Uh, not everybody has a lot of money in this world, and I don't know if you've noticed, stuff costs more. And uh, so, you know, every, that, that happens. Cultural issues sweep across our path. And then you guys, we've seen a lot of funerals this year. And mortality can come and, and really challenge your faith. And so as, as I sat back there and I would think about you guys and ponder how to best shepherd this church, it reinforced to me the importance of giving you an accurate understanding of God so that in the midst of whatever struggle you have, you can grab a hold of God in perilous times. When the difficulties arise, you don't have to be overwhelmed by those difficulties because your faith is strengthened enough that you can walk through whatever, what, what David say, the valley of the shadow of death, and you don't have to fear, you don't have to tremble, you don't have to fall apart because there is a great God in your, in your corner. Now, the Bible teaches us that God is personal and engaged. Do you remember how Jesus taught us to pray when he would say, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And he said, what are the first two words, you guys? Our Father. The very first two words of expression of prayer suggest relationship and suggest a God who is there who cares. He's not an an abstract entity. He is your father. I don't want you to ever forget that. Um, And I think it's important for you to be reminded to hang on to your heart in the midst of those perilous times, in the midst of those difficulties. So I'm sitting back there thinking about that, and I, my assignment today is the book of Ezra, and I open the book of Ezra up, and I start reading the book of Ezra, and I read it uh, from beginning to end in one setting, and I sit there, and I got three pages of notes from that one reading, and I'm just kind of throwing things together. I'm like, oh my goodness, Ezra shows us how to follow God in perilous times. 
And so I can't wait uh, to share that with you, if you don't mind turning to the book of Ezra. And if you're, again, not used to your Bible, or you've never heard of the book of Ezra, you certainly have no idea where to find it. In your chair in front of you is a Bible, and it's on page 389. How's that? You can follow along, and uh, we'll, we'll deal with this together. And I want to start out and just remind you of the presence of God in the midst of perilous times, and do just a quick review of where we've come from. We started all the way back in creation, and from creation, God chose a guy named Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, and God directed that entire thing, and from the time of Abram all the way up to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, God is the king. God is the one who rules. He is the one who oversees. He is the one that is turned to. He is the one who says what is ethical and unethical, what is right, what is wrong, what is judgeable, and what is applaudable, right? He's the one who makes the rules. He's the monarch. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, a very pivotal chapter in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel says, we don't want God to be our king. We want a king like all the other nations. And God, uh, in his kindness and frustration, allowed that to happen, and Saul was chosen king. Saul was king for about 37 years, and then David became king, and he was king for 40 years. Then Solomon became king, and he was king for 40 years. We call that the united monarchy of the nation of Israel. It lasted from 1 Kings chapter, or, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 to 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon then falls flat on his faith, and his faith, did I say that poorly? I doubled up on faith, didn't I? Did you understand what I meant? He fell flat on his faith and his face. Anyhow, uh, Solomon fails, and the kingdom is torn from him and his family, and that begins what's called the divided kingdom period from 1 Kings 12 all the way to the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And that's where Luke uh, left us last Sunday at the end of 2 Chronicles, reminding us that uh, things were not well. In fact, the, the monarchy with the theocracy that became the united monarchy, that then became the divided monarchy, now becomes captivity. As the nation of Israel is destroyed. If you're at Ezra, just look across the page to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 36, and in verse 17, it says, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. He is God in this passage, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary. He had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king uh, and his princes, all these were brought to Babylon, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed the vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword, and they became slaves, slaves to him and his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So at the end of Second Chronicles, there's no united kingdom, divided kingdom, there's no kingdom. There is no temple. There is no nation, just slavery. The very next writings we have in the Bible is the book of Ezra. 
And the final verses of 2 Chronicles are actually the first verses of the book of Ezra. So much so that a lot of people give Ezra credit for writing Chronicles. Anyhow, Ezra comes and he now is going to give you the situation and the scenario in the midst of perilous times, you guys. Times when a nation went from majority to minority. Time when the nation was the great influencer to slavery. Where is God? What is He doing? Is He trustworthy? Ezra 1.1 In the first year of King Cyrus, excuse me, of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so Ezra starts out in a period of captivity with God intervening in a pagan king's heart. That fascinates me. I don't know if it does you. I wrote down, does Cyrus know he's being stirred by God? What do you think? We should vote. My guess is he probably didn't even know that it was God that was moving his heart. Now behind that little phrase is a prophecy that I want you to turn to in Isaiah chapter 44, which is on page 605 of that Bible that's in front of you. Isaiah chapter 44. I bring you here uh, to show the hand of God's development, even in the midst of the worst of times for the nation of Israel. Because what I'm about to read to you was written 200 years before Cyrus became king of Persia. Isaiah 44, verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of kings, to open doors that gates will not be closed. I will go before you and level exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of brown and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. I do this for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Wow! 200 years before Ezra, 1-1 is Isaiah, chapter 44 and 45 where God knows already He's going to do what He's now doing. Does that not comfort you in some ways? 
in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your perilous times, to know that there is a Creator who is all-powerful who's in your corner. Perhaps fear is not your best move. Right? Perhaps depression is not as deep. Perhaps faith could give you a path through your difficulties. Well, he ends up, by the way, just to put a cap on it, in verse 13 of Isaiah 45, and he said, I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah 44 and 45 become the prophetic background of the book of Ezra. Now, you go back to Ezra and you see the hand of God at work in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. So we saw he stirred up the spirit of a pagan king in verse 1. This king makes a proclamation in verse 2. And you get down to verse 5 and the, the proclamation is, we're going to send all of Israel back to build their city up. And you go, yeah, I read about it in Isaiah 45. I knew you were going to do that. We're waiting for you to catch up to what the creator of all things was up to. And then rose, verse 5, the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So in the midst of the most difficult times, here's God stirring up a pagan king, and here's God stirring up the hearts of the people of Israel. He takes both of them and combines them into one to accomplish his purposes. You'll notice in verse 2 that he's called the God of heaven. By chapter 5, verse 11, Israel will claim him as the God of heaven and earth. Um... This is good news for you if you've experienced the death of someone that you love recently. He's the God of what? Heaven and earth. Um, I was listening this week to a eulogy by Monty Williams, who was the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. In 2016, his wife was instantly killed in a head-on traffic collision in Oklahoma City, and he stood up, and he said one of the more profound things about death I had heard, and I decided I was going to steal it and use it forever, and he said this, a lot of you will say that I lost my wife. He said, but how can you lose someone if you know where they are? She's with the God of heaven. I have not lost my wife. I know exactly where she is. I thought, that's brilliant. This is who the God of Ezra is, you guys. In the midst of perilous times, here's the God of heaven, the God of earth, at work, in their midst. They might not even know it. They might not even perceive it. And he is working out what he wills. I beg you in the midst of your worst moments to not give up on your father. The one who in the worst of times is at work even though you may not know it. 
Um, in the rest of the book of Ezra, uh, we find that over and over it said, the hand of God was upon me. Let me give you a couple of those. Chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, and the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 9, the hand of the Lord was on him. Verse 28, the hand of the Lord was on him. I could go on, 8.18, 8.22, In each instance, their, their understanding was, God is directing the steps of my life. As you unpack, I think there are six of those passages. Here's what you find the hand of God does. It inspired people. It illuminated and gave them understanding. It strengthened them in the midst of their struggles. It guided them when they didn't know where to go and protected them from their enemies. The hand of God was on them. You guys, this is your God. This is your God. The one whose hand is upon. The one who goes before. The one that you cry out to, our Father. And so in the midst of perilous times and in the midst of captivity, in the midst of this disgusting situation where the nation's been destroyed and pillaged, God is not dead. He is not slack. He is working out his plans. Which then brings me to the next purpose. What is the purpose of God during perilous times? And I would suggest to you that it is no different than when times are prosperous. The purpose of God is to bring a distinct people to this earth, a people of his own, a, a group of folks that honor him and please him and obey him and put him on display so that other people will become his people. And again, I take you back to the book of Isaiah chapter 10 um, in verse uh, 20 in this page 575, Isaiah chapter 10. And in Isaiah 10, it says, In that day the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people of Israel will be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord of hosts will make full end as decreed on all the earth. They were a sand. Uh, the population about the time of Solomon was 2.5 million in Israel. We will see in Ezra chapter 2 all the people who returned, and when you get to the end, verse 64, there were 42,000 people. That's the remnant of people. Think about that. 2.5 million, 42,000. The remnant is now coming back under his hand. He will start over with 42,000. There's always a remnant, you guys. There's always a group of faithful. But think about the fall of Israel here. The ones that the whole world came to, King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, comes to, 
to see the greatness of the king of Israel and God had given him wisdom and prospered him at such a level that the whole world marveled at him. And they go from that understanding of that great favor to a place where there's hardly any people left. I hear frequently about um, the fall of the United States. I, I, I hear from people how we've lost the Judeo-Christian foundation of our nation. Have you noticed? And it has this sense where we went from having a majority voice in our country to guide laws and and, and, and what morality existed and what was right and what was wrong, and all of a sudden that's gone. And we are now the little voices in the wilderness that no one pays attention to other than call us some type of phobic, right? If you stand up for moral, biblical uh, truth, you're going to be branded a phobe of something, you know, monkeys or something, you know. Uh, I, I'm against monkeys. Oh, you're a monkey foe. Yeah, that's, I actually am a monkey foe, by the way. I just want you to know. And we are to be a distinct people. We are to be the representation of the living God on this earth. And we live in a scenario today where we've gone from having the ability to really be the influencers to being the influenced. And And the onslaught against our Christian beliefs and our Christian values is overwhelming at times. Doesn't it feel like everything's falling apart? But I will tell you this, you are never a minority when the Lord is on your side. We are never at a disadvantage when the God and creator of all things is our God. And that's what Israel has to learn right here. They've gone from 2.5 million to 42,000 people. They've gone from ruling and, and being the admiration of the entire world to slaves for another king. Their homes and lifestyles have been ravaged. And here they are, a distinct people. And God is about to take this people in captivity and turn this remnant right back around to show the world, yeah, I'm still here. And you guys, I, I can't help but think that for us in our country, and by the way, if you don't mind me saying so, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ have labored as minorities around the world forever. We just have lived in the prosperous times in the U.S. of A., But if you interviewed your brothers and sisters in Christ in Jordan, for example, or Iraq, or China, or Russia, you would find that they frequently understand what it is to be the persecuted minority. I think we are learning about that right now. And as we take that mantle on, we have to put God on display in the midst of being the minority voice. Um, for your consideration, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'll get back to Ezra. <coughs> I've been fighting this summer cold all week. I don't think I'm winning. I don't know. 
I'm better than I was Wednesday night. If any of you heard me on Wednesday night, I sounded like a 12-year-old boy going through puberty. My voice was cracking, and I couldn't. And, and today, I sound like a 14-year-old boy going through puberty. It's just beautiful. I'm growing up. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, I got 1,014 in my Bible. I, I was told, by the way, that some of our Bibles start over in, in the chairs at page 1 at the New Testament. Uh, if you have one of those, my apologies. Just take it home with you and so we can put the other. No, I'm just kidding. You can take it home with you anyhow. I'd love for you to have it. First uh, Peter uh, 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone, he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is written during the Roman Empire, where in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, um, oh, excuse me, verse 7, the, the trials are by fire. Nero's setting Christians on fire in his courtyard as tiki torches, and he's saying, you're supposed to be there to uh, influence the world. And you drop down to verse 9, your chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. As sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the place which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to shine as minority Christ followers, even though our culture shifts. These Israelites are in a position that they've never been in. They have been conquered and whooped. They are now being returned to their country, and God's purpose is to raise a distinct people up because of his love in the nations. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra is the story of them becoming that distinct people. They are rebuilding the temple. We finish chapter 2 with its list of all the people in there. In chapter 3, they get the foundations done. A fellow named Zerubbabel was the uh, general contractor here. That, that's a great general contractor's name, you know. Anyhow, he builds the uh, uh, foundations, and they stop, and they build the altar, and they immediately start offering sacrifices in the Temple Mount. They begin practicing their faith. They begin showing the distinctness of who they are and who their God is, and the people around them can't stand it. Chapter 4, verse 1, the adversaries show up. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, they try to join them. In verses 4 and 5, they try to bribe them. In, chapter, in verse 6, they make accusations against them. And the rest of the chapter is a letter they write to the political king and say, you got to shut this down, which he does. By the end of chapter 4, the building stops because the adversaries of the minorities don't like what they're doing. Let us not think for a moment that when we stand up, and we hold our God up and say, this is the one true God that everybody's going to go, oh, it's so good to see you. Thank you for showing up. I'll tell you my story. So a few years ago, we bought this campus, and I was invited to a meeting uh, of the Neighborhood Association and, and the uh, Well Street Business Association. Hey, come tell us what your plans are. And uh, I said, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to get to tell them how lucky they are that 
Wallen Baptist Church is coming to your neighborhood. It's now going to be called Headwaters Church. It's going to be amazing. We're going to do it. So I show up, and I should have known I was in trouble when the meeting was at Sloan's Funeral Home <laughs> on Well Street. I didn't realize that I was the corpse for the evening. I was going to be looked at, and actually I was going to be murdered is what was going to happen. So I show up, and I start my little speech. Hi, I'm John Seuss from Headwaters Church. Here we are, you lucky people. I didn't say it that way. I was a little more modest than that. We're really excited to be a part of the neighborhood. Can't wait to get down here. And they started yelling at me. And then it's like they orchestrated it. They tag-teamed, and the one guy would yell at me for five minutes, and then he'd stop, and then the lady on the other side would start yelling at me. And I'm like, what is happening? Lord, you brought me here tonight to tell them how wonderful it's going to be to have our great church in their neighborhood, and they don't want us here. And they didn't. And they slaughtered me for an hour and a half. And I stood there, and I don't know if you've ever gone through this. I'm kind of going through it right now where you're kind of praying while you're talking. You're kind of, Lord, I wouldn't mind if you wake the people up in this room right now because I'm trying to talk to them and uh, be great if they were. And, and, and so I'm like, Lord, what the, what's going on? I thought you sent me down here to proclaim how great you are. It's going to be amazing. They're going to be so thankful we're here. They weren't thankful. They didn't think he was amazing, and they hated me. And then I realized I had a job to do that night, and my job was to take a beating. That was my only job. Not a literal beating. That would have been interesting. The, uh, the, the captain of the police precinct was in the room. He's the one who invited me. Thanks a lot, PJ. And uh, <clears throat> Aim was in tears, and, and it was not good. And I finally looked at him, and I said, you, don't, you shouldn't trust me. Don't believe any words I say to you, but here's what I'll, I'll make you a deal. In the next three years, I'm going to show you that we're the best neighbors you could ever hope to have. And I walked out of the room and got in my car and drove home and sat down in my little chair in my living room and went, what just happened? What? And PJ calls me, John. Oh, PJ, that was, he goes, that was great. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, it was great, man. You did great. I'm like, I did not do great. He goes, yeah, the people said, we can work with this guy. It was all a trial, you guys, to find out if we we're going to be real. Now, the Lord happened to bring a little world-changing thing called COVID not too long after that, which kind of ruined my three-year plan. So I asked for a freebie on the three-year. Can you give us four or five? And that's what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now is trying to be a distinct people for the cause of Christ in the downtown Fort Wayne area. I don't care where you live. If you live in suburbia, if you live downtown, if you live southwest, northwest, we have people driving from Hartford City. We got people from Albion. We got people from all over the place. But what we're really trying to do as a group of people is say, here is our great God. And we want you to see him because we just want you to know him. We don't want you to pat us on the back. We don't need your applause. We don't need you to tell us how great we are. We just want you to see how great he is. Well, that's what the Israelites start doing here. And the adversaries show up. The end of chapter 4, the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped. And I tried to research how long it stopped. 
And this was a heart check for me because it was 15 to 18 years between verse 24 of chapter 4 and chapter 5, verse 1, where it starts again. And I have to keep reminding myself here at Wells, this is not a six-month project, you guys. It's not even a three-year project. That was what I told the neighbors. This is a 50-year endeavor. This is, this is about the next generation of Christians standing in the same place, doing greater things than we've ever even dreamed of. That's what this is about. I have to remind myself of that because I'm like, chop, chop, we got things to do, we got to get going. We got a swimming pool filled in, it'd be nice to throw some cement over it and free these gyms up and, and bring a great place to worship there and, and use this for community. Come on, we got to go. And, and the Lord's like, to Troy, always tell me, it's okay, John, it's okay. The Lord, Lord's going to take care of it. I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to be dead. And I thought, maybe I could be here. Just seemed, if I'm dead, I'm dead. He won't be, right? I don't know why I told you all that. None of that's in Ezra, but I thought you didn't still. In chapter 6, they celebrate the Passover for the first time in a long time. The temple is finished. Discouragement had come, but in chapter 5, verse 1, two prophets show up. Haggai and Zechariah, you can read their prophecies, they're in your Bible. They were about this point, in this period, in this time, and God sent his messengers in order to rally the troops so they would get off their behinds and stop being fearful and get back to the business of finishing the temple, which they did amongst opposition again. I'll get to that in just a second, but I wanted to take you to chapter 6, and verse 22, at the end of chapter 6, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Syria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the house of Israel. Guess what? They're still slaves. Perilous times have not left them. There was joy in the Lord in the middle of the difficulties. We have to remember that, you guys. We, we may never ascend to the place of majority influence again, but in the midst of our reduced, there can be joy there. Because when you're faithful to God, you find joy with God. Now, one other little sidelight before I go on to the distinct message it's in chapter 6, verse 4. I wanted to show you something that I thought was interesting. Uh, with, the, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid by the royal treasury. The king sent a letter out and says, we're going to pay to rebuild the temple. And you go down to uh, verse 8. Moreover, I was make a decree, this is the king, what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid by these men in full without delay from the royal revenue. We have not received a check from the city of Fort Wayne yet, but just kidding. 
But isn't it amazing, you guys, when the hand of God is, at mo- is, is moving in ways you don't even know, the adversaries become advocates. Those who are against you all of a sudden become your promoters. The king of Persia is building the temple for them. That's unbelievable. And so they now have set a distinction about themselves from everybody else and show themselves as a distinct people. Chapters 7 to 10 show a distinct message from the rest of the world. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, the guy Ezra doesn't show up in the book with his name until chapter 7, verse 1. It could have been the book of Zerubbabel. But nobody wants to name their kids Zerubbabel. Maybe some Amish people name their kids Zerubbabel. I bet there's a Zerubbabel out there in Grable somewhere. Someone look that up. And, no, don't look that up. I'm sorry. Brother. I know there's Ezra's out there. And Ezra shows up, and here's what it says. He's the son of all these people in verse 1. Um, and in verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe. He was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was with him. So now the distinction of the temple exists, and now the distinction of the message of the people of Israel is going to follow them as well. God's work is not done in this perilous time. And in chapter 7, verse 7, they go up and da-da-da-da-da. And, and uh, on the first day, verse 9, uh, the first month he began, that's Ezra from Babylonia, and the fifth day to Jerusalem, for the good hand of God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes to the rules of Israel. By the way, if you ever are asked to give a devotional, there's your text, Ezra 7.10. What do you do with the Bible? You study the Bible. You do the Bible. You teach the Bible. And Ezra shows up and he says, here is how we are to live. As the people of Israel hear this message, they have an instant flash of conscience and they go, "Uh uh-oh, that's not who we are. Now what? And so in chapter 9, they show up, and um, uh, they've got problems because they've married all these Persian and Babylonian women. And they hear what the law of God says about that, and they're like, "Um, I think we have a problem. And that distinct message brings great guilt to the nation of Israel, and that great guilt causes them to change the direction of their life because the message of God formed the behavior of the people of God. And everything is different now. And so chapters 9 and 10 have to deal with how they deal with intermarriage, and the book actually ends with a list of all the people who were guilty of intermarriage all the way from verses 18 to, what is it, 44 at the end of chapter 10. And you now have a group of people who are distinct by how they worship and what they do. 
And now they have been given a distinct message to show how they are supposed to be separated from the behaviors of the people around them, not from the people themselves. We've never been asked to separate just from the people's, but from the people's behavior. When you look at our Lord in in Luke chapter 7, and it says, one of my favorite titles of Jesus in the New Testament, friend of sinner. And he was such a friend of sinners that he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. You don't get that reputation by doing it once. It was Jesus' behavior to be a friend with those around him, even though he didn't behave like them. Now, that then is the book of Ezra. In the midst of the perilous times, there is a pursuit of God that Israel puts on display for us. And there are four things that they do that I want to just highlight for you and I'll get you out the door. Are you ready? The first thing they had was genuine worship. In chapters 3, 1 to 5, they sacrificed again. In chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, a a, a great little verse there. Um, The people of Israel, in verse 16, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They celebrated again. They're still slaves. They're still oppressed. And in the midst of that oppression, because of their worship, they celebrated. And then verses 19 to 22, they remembered again. Here's what happened to the people of Israel. They were jarred back to who they really were. And they began to value God again. When you break down what worship really is, it is ascribing value to the thing that you say you are aligned to. So worship is, uh, actually comes from an old English word, worth-ship. You ascribe worth to the things that you worship. Could be your Corvette. Could be your Golden Doodle. Could be your Apple i47 phone. I don't know, what, what number are we up to? 14, thank you. And everybody's looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard of Apple before. I'm very confused by you. So what we give value to is what we worship. Um, I purposely decided to take this little tirade. Are you ready for my tirade? I'm very concerned about the evangelical church in America defining worship as singing. I'm not saying it's not singing. I'm just saying it's not only singing. In fact, I think singing is more of a product of worship. It is an overflow of something that's happened prior than it is the only expression or the greatest expression of worship. I would suggest to you that worship comes from submission and sacrifice because you value God enough to follow his laws. You value God enough to follow his ways. You say to him what you tell me I will do. As a result of that, your heart is filled with joy, and guess what happens? You sing. 
you pray. But worship is far more than singing and praying. Worship is submission and sacrifice. You ready? You want to know if you really worship God? Look at your calendar and look at your bank account. I think the next time someone comes to me and says, I I just don't like the style of worship at your church, I'm going to go, tell me about your financial support. I just thought it'd be fresh and funny, right? What is your commitment to God that stirs your heart to sing? What is your lack of commitment to God that makes the style of the song more important than the content of the song? I know I'm stepping on you. I kind of meant to out of love, because I've been sitting in the back. The book of Malachi makes this very, very clear. 100 years after the book of Ezra, Malachi shows up, gives his prophecy, and he, sa- he accuses the people of Israel of robbing God. How, how have we robbed God? Well, when it came time to sacrifice, you know what you sacrifice? Your lame diseased, worthless animals. That's what you think of God. You give him the leftovers that you don't even want. And the offerings that you should bring to support all that he is in his great name, you don't even participate in that. You rob him with your tithes and offerings and your sacrifices. He is appalled. Listen, they were singing, they were doing sacrifices, they were praying, and he was appalled. Why is that? Because the true worship of your heart comes from your submission of your soul and the sacrifice because you say, my God is great and he's not too great to give anything to. Nothing should be withheld. Everything's up for grabs with him. Second, genuine prayer. There are three times uh, at least in this book where prayer just breaks out. Chapter 7, verse 27, um, this letter comes back and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord of Jerusalem. He extended his steadfast love before the king and counselors be all. I took courage for the hand of my God. was Oh, he just breaks out with joy and says, Oh, blessed be God. He's been so good. Chapter 8, verse 21 to 23 Um, So he praises God from what he has done in chapter 8. He proclaims a fast because they have to make a journey. In verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy since we had told the king the hand of our God is good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all those who forsake him. So we've now proclaimed his greatness. I guess we're going to have to live with it instead of the kings. I think we better pray. And so he proclaims the fast, they pray, and you get down to uh, verse 31, we departed from there, the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us. Pretty good stuff. So from what he has done and what he can do brings the third and very interesting prayer in chapter 3 from the brokenness of life. The word is proclaimed to them through Ezra. And as soon as I heard this, verse 3, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled out the hair of my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. 
And I just wondered in my own heart, when's the last time I was really broken about how bad I am? Prayer is a reaction and a response to life. It comes from what God has done. You've seen Him do it in the past, so you praise Him. You know what He can do, so you ask Him to do something in the future. You understand your brokenness before Him, and you beg for forgiveness and mercy, and you repent. Those are expressions of prayer that happen as you walk along the way and as you go on your journey of life, not just when you show up in church. Uh, letter C, genuine understanding. You have the great passage I talked to you about studying, doing, and teaching the law of Israel. And then in chapter 9, 1 and 2, as they hear this, they're like, oh no, we're in trouble. Has the Bible ever opened your heart to the fact that you are not being who God asked you to be? When its pages are open, has it ever convicted you and go, I need to change the way I live Look at what I didn't know, and now I do know. Look at what I forgot, and now I do have. Psalm 119, 105, a psalm, interestingly, that many ascribe to a guy named Ezra as the author. The, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, he said, 119, 105, if it's him. And then uh, letter D, genuine obedience. Um, his word, understood, is his word to be obeyed. His word, when comprehended, is a word to be lived. Do you think I stand up here week after week and preach to you just because it's a fun thing to do? Don't you come here to learn the word so you can be more conformed to the image of Christ? Isn't this why we have church together and we sharpen one another? Isn't that what Ezra did when he studied and he did and he taught? And we bring that word and we understand what it has to say. And guess what happened in the book of Ezra? Their marriages were an abomination to God. Is there anything more um, important in your human existence than your spouse? Is there another relationship that's more significant than that one? And they are like, uh, we have to figure this out. In chapter 10, uh, verses 10 to 12, they stood and they made a confession to the Lord. And at the end of that confession, they said, we need to separate from the peoples of the lands and from the foreign wives. We have to end these marriages in order to honor our God. And the, re and the return exiles, verse 16, did so. Ezra the priest selected men, and on the first day of the month they went after it, and then they make a list of all the people who follow. We're not here today to debate uh, marriage standards from eras, okay? You're going, oh, sweet, I've been looking for an out for my crummy spouse. He just said I could get rid of him. I didn't say that. I'm just telling you what they did. But here's what I want you to know, that in perilous times, God's standard of your obedience is as high as it can possibly be. We take you the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. I apologize if I don't have the page number for this one. Matthew chapter 10. 
I'm going to read one of those statements that you know that Jesus said that you can't believe he said it. There's no way he could have meant what he said. This can't possibly be true. And here's what he said. He says, um, do not think that, I, this is verse 34 of Matthew 10, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That one, by the way, wasn't that surprising, right? The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not cross, uh, does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And who finds his life uh, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did you hear what your Lord said? Those are not easy words, are they? How many of you want to rewrite the New Testament because your child wants to live a homosexual lifestyle? How many of you want to rewrite the ethics of God because someone dear to you who means the world to you is running away from God? And you're like, wow, we've, God can't really mean, right? And I grab a hold of those folks whenever I know, and I said, this is the greatest trial of your true faith that you may ever experience on this world because you love that daughter, that son, that wife more than anything. And you now have to choose the Lord instead of them. And then they usually go to another church. You don't want to hear that. How dare you say that to me? You don't know my son or daughter or my spouse. I don't. I just know what that book said. And I'm happy to sit here and weep with you about that. And I'm happy to hold your hand as you navigate that, but I can't change it, nor should you want me to. So in perilous times, obedience, understanding, prayer, and worship define our lives. And they help us in the midst of the perilous times to find the joy of the Lord and the hope and confidence that he is there and he is real and we do not have to give up. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word to Ezra and uh, help us to be diligent in living it out. These were hard words today for us, but they're good words they heal and they strengthen and they, they give us purpose. And I pray for the people in the room who may have chosen a son or a daughter over you or a spouse over you or even themselves over you. And I pray that you rescue them back to yourself with total allegiance, hearts filled with joy in the midst of a great trial. Let it be so, Father, and thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen.